Hey, get out a get out a pen and get out your blank notes, and then at the end, I will make sure that that other handout gets handed out to you. Let's start our Bible study. Well, we now come to the center column of our chart, and we actually enter part two, which we are calling the backbone of Christian character. In the first column, we have looked at arete, adding to saving faith, arete, and then knowledge, that pursuit of Jesus Christ and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we we spent, as it were, some time in the sanctuary. And now we're going to move in column two into the gymnasium, where we have to develop some disciplines of the Christian life. We are learning that there is a great deal of work that we must put in this, although God enables us to do what he requires us to do. And as we enter the gymnasium here, we're going to build on the commitment of that first column and we will have to sit down at the workstations and do many repetitions to develop the qualities that God wants to develop in our lives. And the backbone of Christian character is forged here in the second column. Paul says it this way in 1 Timothy 4, 7-8. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And Peter here is pointing us next to cultivating self-control, which we're defining as a God-empowered mastery of internal desires. And we could say that while capturing the heart for Christ is what it means to pursue the likeness of Christ and His excellence, and informing the heart is what is done, what is accomplished in uh, adding knowledge, that here in cultivating self-control, we are training the heart. And the Bible has much to say about the training of our heart. Uh, Particularly Proverbs has several passages. I'll just uh, touch on three of them here. Proverbs 4.23 says, Guard thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Proverbs 25.28 He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. A man who doesn't have rule or control, doesn't have the kind of self-control we're talking about here, over his own spirit is like a city without walls. There are no defenses in his life. And Proverbs 21-25 says, The desire of the slothful killeth him, for his hands refuse to labor. And Proverbs is very, very clear that a man can be ruined by his desires. And and God is offering a remedy here of self-control. This is spirit-enabled self-control, as we'll talk about in a few minutes. And this goes counter-culture to everything we see in our culture, because our culture is teaching us to indulge ourselves. Have it your way. Do whatever you want. Don't let anybody tell you what to do. And yet God is saying, if you're going to be godly, you're going to have to have discipline. And you discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, he says. And Peter makes it very clear that this self-control is a part of the antidote to the immorality that he sees around him in that church and certainly the immorality around us. And also it is the antidote to the draw of, of uh, Christian liberty falsely taught. 
So there, this is an important issue, but it also brings some important cautions to us when we start talking about this matter of self-discipline or self-control. Because sanctification, while it does require cooperation on our part, is not a do-it-yourself project. We don't simply ratchet up the self-control by human effort alone. And isn't that easy for us to do? To just try to do it ourselves. And we say, you know, I, I need to become more faithful here and I need to do this or that. And if we're not careful, we just ratchet that up by our own self-effort and it does nothing but frustrate us and tire us out. And what we have to see is that the self-control that Peter is talking about here is the same self-control that Paul talks about as a fruit of the Spirit. It is something that God produces in us. And, and I, I would have us to note this, that since it is a fruit of the Spirit, the more we under, are under the control of the Spirit of God, the more we mature in our Christian walk, the more self-control we have. It's not that, well, you know, I, I, I reach a certain level of spiritual maturity and I just don't, I just don't have to um, control. I, I can indulge in a lot of things now because I'm spiritually mature. It doesn't work that way. The more spiritually mature you are, the more self-controlled you are, the more you turn away from self-indulgence. And our natural desires have to be gratified only within scriptural boundaries. And our sinful desires have to be denied entirely. Another caution here, it is, it's important for us to understand that the self-control is not control by self. It's not control of our lives by our natural self. That's the ratcheting up um, by ourself that I was talking about a little bit earlier. It is not control by the self. It is control of the self, of the natural self, and often of the sinful self. And the development process is pretty straightforward. At every crossroad where we have to decide whether we're going to please ourselves or please God, we have to decide on the, the uh, side of pleasing God and cultivate arete, that pursuit of Christ-likeness. And then we have to know in this situation, what is it that God wants me to do? We have to have some knowledge of God and His ways. And then we have to do it by His grace. The Spirit-enabled self-denial fuels the discipline of the believer's life toward the Christ-like excellencies he seeks to emulate. And I want to just illustrate the difference between God-dependent self-denial and somebody who is just trying to discipline himself in his own efforts. Let's say that we have a high school student, and um, he's not done real well in his Christian school. Uh, he's not studied well, he's been in a good bit of trouble, but in for some reason... He decides, at the, perhaps at the persuasion of his parents, and, and he's had perhaps teachers in his Christian school that have been exhorting the students to go to a Christian college. And uh, a couple of his teachers are from Bob Jones University, and so he decides, you know, I really need some discipline in my life. I need to go to Bob Jones. And so he approaches his English teacher, and he says, I, I got to tell you something. Um, I turned in an application to Bob Jones University. And she says, are you kidding? He said, no, I really did. I, I know that you're from Bob Jones and I know that, you know, you think that's a good place and I thought I'm going to go to Bob Jones. And she says, you'll never make it at Bob Jones academically. You never turned anything on time, in on time for me. I had to beg and plead. The only reason I passed you is because I do not want to see you here again next year. <laughs> How are you going to make it at Bob Jones? You have no self-control. 
And he said, I know, but I'm going to turn over a new leaf. And when I get down to Bob Jones, I'm going to be a different person. So she says, I will pray for you. Well, he goes out in the hall, and in the hallway, he, a hall, a hallway, he meets the principal. And the principal says, well, John, guess what? I just got a call from an admissions counselor at Bob Jones University. They say you've applied. And he says, yes, I decided that's where I go. That's what I need. He says, you're going to never, you're never going to make it. Well, I'm going to turn over. He said, and the, and the principal says, look, John, you spent more time in my office than you did in class. How do you expect to make it down at Bob Jones? You'll be expelled the first week. I know that, that you're probably right. That is the way, except I'm going to change. So he gets down to Bob Jones and he goes through the first uh, week of classes where they hand out all the assignments and he comes uh, to the evening when he needs to start studying. And so he opens his books and he lays them out in his desk and he looks at all of that and he looks at the assignment sheet and this big old thick book he's got to read. He looks and says, I do not want to study tonight. I need to go play basketball in the gymnasium. I need to go hang out with my friends. There's a lot of surfing I need to do on the web. There are lots of parts of the web I've never seen. And um, I, just, I just need to do some more work like that. And then he thinks, oh, no, no, no. Those are, there are those people back at home that are thinking I won't make it. There's that English teacher, my principal, my parents don't even... And I am going to study tonight. And he buckles down and he studies and he does that every night. And instead of pulling the C minuses and the D pluses, he actually is getting some B's. And his parents are very happy about it and he's pleased with himself. My goodness, this is the best he's ever done. But folks, God is not pleased at all. God has not been involved in this process, in this boy's life at all in this. This is not honoring to God. An unbeliever can do exactly what he just did. God is not honored in this. We may say, well, what do you mean he's getting better grades? But he's doing it in his own effort and for his own selfish reasons to prove that he's not going to be a failure. God's not in his picture. Well, how does that happen that an unbeliever or that a person like this, a Christian like this, can actually develop some discipline in his life? Well, God in his common grace, in his common grace to all men, has made it so that any human being can improve by picking a standard and disciplining himself toward that standard. Anybody can do that. An unbeliever can improve. An unsaved businessman can be honest. An unsaved student can be studious. An unsaved worker can be punctual. He can be honest. How does that happen? Because God in His common grace has made it so that any human being can improve by picking a standard and disciplining himself toward that standard. But let's not make any mistake about it. That isn't Christ's likeness and God isn't honored. Because God's not in that picture. Now what needs to happen for this boy to honor God in his change? Well, he's got to come to that same position. He sees all these books in front of him and these assignments. And he sits down and he has the same temptations. He wants to just chuck all of this and forget about it and hope it'll go away. Or sleep on the book, hoping that somehow that by osmosis the knowledge would get into his brain or something. And he's going to do something else. And then he thinks, no, I can't do this. Because God wants me to become a certain kind of person. God is pleased if I will add to my knowledge of Christ self-control. 
And that's a fruit of his spirit, and I need him to do that in my life. And he bows his head and he says, Father, you know how I've handled these temptations before. I've just chucked it and gone and done what I want. And I've asked you to forgive me for that. I do not want to live that kind of life again. And you have promised me that if I would obey you, you would give me the grace. And you said that you would be able to make all grace abound toward me so that I always having all sufficiency and all things can abound to every good work. And God, I claim your promise of that tonight. And I'm going to sit here and study. Give me the desire to do it and the power to do it. And with your help, I will. I want to honor your son. I want to be like him. That boy is developing some Christ-likeness. For the fruit of God's Spirit to be born in our lives, folks, there has to be a lot going on between us and God. You can't just pick a standard and say, "With I am going to do this no matter what. In order to do this in a God-centered way, I've got to bow before God, acknowledge this is what He wants, do it with His help, acknowledging it's for Him that I'm doing it. In that process, a guy will develop some Christ-likeness. He will develop the fruit of self-control. Let's look at this word self-control just a little bit more. The Greek word is enkratia. The root word from which this word for self-control comes from means to take hold of or to grip. And we might use it this way with somebody who is out of control in some way and we might turn to him and say, buddy, get a grip. We're saying you're out of control. Get some control. That's exactly what this word means, to get a grip. Barclay commentator says, it is that strength of soul by which a man takes hold of himself. Now, it's not by his own bootstraps. It's in the power of the Spirit of God. Takes a grip of himself, is in full control and possession of himself so that he can restrain every evil desire. Another commentator, Hebert, says, self-control points to the inner power to control one's own desires and cravings. The fruit resulting from true knowledge. Where did that knowledge come from? That was the last item in the chart. You've been adding the knowledge of Christ and His ways. And he said, this is the fruit resulting from true knowledge. While the term often connoted restraint from the fulfillment of sexual desires, and the uh, secular philosophers used it that way almost exclusively, that it meant restraint from sexual desires. In the Christian view of it, it extends to all areas of life where the discernment between good and evil is important. It is another thrust in this second Peter passage at the false teachers whose claim to liberty through knowledge led them into licentious practices. He said, we really, the false teachers are saying, we really know this stuff about God. And he hasn't told us we have to do all of that. So we're free to do this over there. And Hebert is saying that Peter is saying that if you have the true knowledge of Christ, it will lead to self-control. It will not lead to license. Daryl Charles, another commentator, agrees. He says, true knowledge then leads not to license, but rather to self-control. The Greek philosophers, interestingly enough, use this word self-control almost exclusively in tandem with the next word we're going to talk about, endurance. And they define self-control as victory over your internal passions, your internal desires. And endurance is victory over external pressures coming your way. And they're not far off from the biblical use of that word. 
And what we need to understand is that the believer can and will say no to any wrong desires of his own heart when he has said a bigger yes to God. There are several newlyweds in our audience here tonight who have said a very big yes to one another, as all of us did who were married at an altar. And the way that you say no to all of the other temptations out there is that you keep renewing your big yes to your spouse. And when the yes to your spouse is big enough, it's not hard to say no to anybody else. And the same thing with God. If we're pursuing light, likeness to Christ with all of our heart, that wholehearted commitment to Him, we say a big enough yes to Christ, it's not hard to say no to other things. David DeWitt has a book I read some years ago called The Mature Man, which illustrates this matter of self-control in a very, very powerful way, and I think a way that needs to be understood in our culture today. He says a man is an increasingly hard thing to find. We live in a society of boys, 20, 30, 40, 50, and 60-year-old boys. Many guys today seem to have the goal of maintaining a junior high mentality all the way through life. By the way, I can't tell you how many wives have told my wife and me in in uh, couples conferences and family conferences, I married him because he was so much fun, but he has never quit playing around. He never settles down and gets busy helping with the children and doing the things that really matter. He's still a boy. The only thing that has changed is the price of his toys. Can I tell you how many times we've heard that? That's because those men have been infected by our culture. The ultimate in life seems to be to retire, still a boy. I suggest there is virtually no difference between the shuffleboard courts of St. Petersburg, Florida, with the retirees, and the parties at Daytona Beach. The proof of my suggestion is that those playing shuffleboard would be at Daytona Beach if they were 50 years younger. They've not developed into men at all. They've just gotten older. There are at least three major stages in the development of a male. Boy, man, and patriarch. This means there are two major transitions he must make if he is to fulfill the character God gave him. As a boy, he must decide to be a man. That's the first transition. It's a decision he makes and he cultivates. And as a man, he must decide to be a patriarch. And then he gives some important definitions. He says, a boy is a male who is generally chaotic not yet having established order for his life. I remember as a, as a young boy myself, loving to go to the sale barn with my grandpa. And I would like to go with my cousin. But grandpa wisely would only take one of us. Because one boy brings a certain amount of chaos, two boys doubles the chaos. It doesn't double the help. A man is a male who has taken on the responsibility for establishing order for himself and that of his immediate family. He's not only concerned about orderliness in his own life and bringing everything under the right priorities, but he's concerned about extending that to the people in his charge. A patriarch is a man who has taken on the responsibility for establishing maturity for himself and applying it to his extended family. 
And the older you get, and with the grandchildren coming along, this is, this becomes a burden. I'm doing a lot of praying and a lot of, I'm even writing a little book for my grandsons right now. I, I'm trying to extend that influence of order into their lives. That's the job of a patriarch. He's to bring maturity into the, into the situations around him. Then he goes on and says, what makes a boy a boy is that he pursues chaos. He has not ordered his life. His life is not yet headed in a direction. He lacks discipline to accomplish tasks. He has not taken significant ownership of values or virtues. I tell the students at the university, if you enter a classroom and there is more chaos because you are there, you're a boy. If you enter a classroom and there's more order because you arrived, you're a man. If you walk into your resident hall room and there's more order because you're there, you're a man. If there's more chaos because you arrived, you're a boy. A man brings with him order. A boy brings with him chaos. So DeWitt asks, what turns a boy into a man? This is the most important and most basic transition in the life of a male. And it is where most of us fail. If a boy does not become a man, all future development is merely a fabrication of the real thing. All he can do is pretend that he has his act together. It's a fabrication because he does not have his act together. Of course, a boy will get bigger and older, but size and age do not make a man. Manhood is a spiritual decision a boy must make. And if he doesn't make this decision, he will remain a boy all his life. We heard about that from the readings from Diana West in The Death of the Grown-Up. Most of our culture, the men in our culture, are not making any spiritual decisions at all, let alone decisions to bring order into their lives. They still bring chaos everywhere they go. The definition then is that a boy is a male who is generally chaotic, not yet having personally established order for his life. A boy is chaotic. His challenge is to become orderly. And I think DeWitt has captured the essence of manhood in those statements. A man is a male who is exercising this self-control that we're talking about in the power of the Spirit of God to bring order into his life. That's exactly what this young man is doing when he's studying and when he's approaching his studies this way. He knows there is an order, a priority of what is important and what is not important. And he's bringing with the power of the Spirit of God and acknowledging God that there's an order that must be in his life. And with God's help, he's setting up that order. He's becoming a man. He's putting away childish things. The difference between adulthood and childhood is the cultivated habit of saying no to yourself and to anyone else who's out of order. Godly wisdom, then, folks, is essentially knowing the proper order of things. We, we looked at that when we talked about the difference between the eternal matters and the temporal matters. There is a right order there that sets up priorities. And wisdom is knowing those priorities and self-control in the power of the Spirit of God will make those priorities a reality. We cannot become godly. We cannot become Christ-like if we reject order. We must value it and we must practice it. 
Here's what Martin Lloyd-Jones says about this. I defy you to read the life of any saint that has ever adorned the life of the church without seeing at once that the greatest characteristic in the life of that saint was discipline and order. Invariably, it is the universal characteristic of all the outstanding men and women of God. Read about Henry Martin, David Brainerd, Jonathan Edwards, the brothers Wesley and Whitfield, Read their journals. It does not matter what branch of the church they belong to. They have all disciplined their lives and have insisted upon the need for this. And obviously, it is something that is thoroughly scriptural and absolutely necessary. It is for that reason that we understand that God Himself is a God of order. Until recent days... Mankind has generally valued order and human society has reaped the benefit of it. Order means to arrange properly, to be ranked by degree of quality or of importance. And we, we use the word order in many ways. We talk about a military, uh, some military personnel receiving their orders. What is that? Those are commands that they are to bring a certain priority into their life and military service now takes priority over anything else they had planned to do for the next six months to a couple of years. Those are orders. Those are commands of how to order their life now. We hear much in, in speaking about civilization, that mature civilizations have one major characteristic is that they operate by law and order. And we've all seen scenes perhaps on television where it were, they're inside a courtroom and the courtroom is all abuzz and people are making loud noises or whatever, discussing something and, and, the, and the, uh, uh, the, the judge will bang his gavel on the desk and call them to order. There's a priority here. And what is spoken by the witnesses and what is spoken by the attorneys gets, or, gets priority over what is being spoken back there by the, the, the onlookers. And if somebody doesn't obey those judges' orders, they get taken out for disorderly conduct. See, order is important in a civilized world. And order, we have to see, is not man's idea. Order is the fingerprint of God upon everything He has ever done. Everything God does is orderly. God doesn't create chaos. I want us to consider that for just a few moments. Look at, think of the created order. My, when you look at the universe or when you look at the atomic world, there's amazing order here. You look at those, the properties of, of the elements in the periodic table. It does not matter whether you go to South Africa or stay here in South Carolina. When you find that element, it has the same properties. God has ordered it that way. And it is because of that orderliness that the physical universe is predictable. That's the fingerprint of God. The galaxies spin in the right order and in the right places and the right speeds and, and our sun is the right distance from the earth and the gravitational pull because of the size of the planet is just the right size. All of that is orderly so that this planet will sustain life. God did that on purpose. He's a God of order. It's the fingerprint of God. 
When you open your Bible, particularly to the Old Testament, you see the ceremonial and the civil order. The ceremonial laws taught that God has to be approached with reverence and therefore orderliness. You don't come to God haphazardly. You don't come to God casually. And that ought to be instructive to us in the way that we worship. The wood had to be laid in order. The sacrifice, um, there was a proper order for the offering of the sacrifices. The, the, uh, set, the, there was an order for setting up the tabernacle and all of its furnishings. When the children of Israel broke camp, there was a certain order that they were to leave. Certain tribes had to go before other tribes and certain tribes had to be carrying this and so forth. There was an orderliness about it. Everything that God commanded has that statement of order in it. Most of the letters in the New Testament are written to churches that were needing to be brought back to order. You look at that church in Corinth. They were fighting among themselves. They were tolerating immorality. They were taking each other to court before unbelievers. They were misusing their Christian liberty. They were disrespectful to the apostles themselves. They were confused about spiritual gifts. What did God do? He inspired an apostle to teach them truth to bring order to that congregation. Paul wrote his epistle to Titus to set things in order in Crete because the culture was infecting that church as well. Then think about the commanded moral order. Every one of God's commands is a statement of order. For example, just take the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Did you know that's a statement of order? There's one person that's first and everybody else is second and down from there. Honor your father and your mother. That is a statement of whose wishes are first. Not committing adultery and not stealing and not lying says that your neighbor comes first. You don't do anything at the expense of your neighbor. Every command in Scripture is a statement of order. It's how you and I are subordinating, are to subordinate our lives to the wishes of God. And by the way, it is this proper subordination under God and proper regard for others above ourselves that is, the, that is at the heart of all ethical behavior. The enemy of order is Lucifer. He broke rank. He got out of order. He wanted to be first above the Creator. And he peddled that disorder to Adam and Eve and corrupted their, their natures with a desire to rule themselves. And I think we, it's important that we not miss the point that every disorder is an attack on the character and the purposes of God because God's intent is to bring order. Satan's desire is to bring disorder. And if you look at everything we know that God has ever done in the history of the world since he created it, since the fall, it is to bring order back into his creation. And ultimately, that is what it is all about when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the one over all. Everything is about bringing that order back. And God has set up penalties for disorder. We find that in many places in the scriptures. Self-will, the disorder of a man asserting his will against God's will in all of its forms of stubbornness and rebellion is an imitation of Lucifer's original disorderliness. And that disorderliness is resisted by God and it's resisted by godly people. 
And often penalties have to be imposed. Late penalties, parental scoldings and spankings and traffic points and fines and suspensions and prison sentences. These are human disorder indexes. They tell you how far you're out of order from where you should be. And God has set up some aids to order. He's established accountability by courageous and compassionate human authorities and peers. Accountability to authorities exposes the willful in their defiance and supports the weak in their struggle. Paul said it this way in 2 Timothy 2.24, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. We have to understand our times. Our society is increasingly disorderly. And our society is rejecting God's rule over it and scorns self-control. And the pipe dream of personal autonomy, the idea that I can rule myself, has replaced personal responsibility. And that cultural disorderliness has infected the church as well. And we have permissive parents and mean-spirited authoritarianism. On the other hand, both of them are disorderly. We have maxed out credit cards, dysfunctional marriages, sensuality in dress and entertainment, unfaithful employees, disrespect to authority, all of those within the church. They're all signs of disorderly living. We have to wholeheartedly live for Christ instead of ourselves. This, and we've got to repent where we have been disorderly. This, this orderliness, this discipline was a major issue with Paul. Look at what he said in 1 Corinthians 9, 25 to 27. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. In Titus 2, he says a very similar thing. For the grace of God that that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, that is, in a self-controlled manner, righteously and godly in this present world. The issue here, folks, is bringing everything in our lives under the lordship of Jesus Christ, that he is over all, he is first. And it takes this self-denial, this spirit-enabled self-denial to do that. There ought to be in our maturing an increasing measure of self-denial and an increasingly well-ordered life, which is one of the marks of the Christ-centered life. I don't know about you, but that was pretty good. The, uh, the idea of order is uh, you can see it everywhere. You can see it in our culture. Uh, the, the declining of order in the home, the declining of order in our culture, and what's the order supposed to be? Well, who, who gives the order? God does. God says, here's the priorities of life. Here's the way I want you to order your life. And when you order your life by my will, then 
you're self-controlling by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, the sheet that I just gave you uh, has a lot of the things that I'm sure some of you were like, man, I didn't get the rest of that quote on there. There's some good things on the front. And then I think there may be three questions on the back that I want you to use this week. Um, but I wrote them down for you so that you could see and you could have them for sure. And instead of, uh, you know, I didn't get the end of that sentence or whatever like that. I didn't get them all, but I did. There were so many good things that he said. I wanted to make sure that we got them. Anybody real quick uh, want to uh, mention anything that stuck out to them real fast? Anybody? Yeah, Lou. Yeah. He's a God of order. I just read that this last week. He is the God of order. And again, he, you know, he wrote, uh, Paul wrote two letters to the church at Corinth. He actually wrote four. We only have two. And, uh, and that church was a mess. I mean, that church was all over the place. And he, he was trying to get them back in order. By the way, he took about 18 months to do it. He was there himself for about a year and a half trying to get people back in order and trying to get them to see, no, 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 you're, you've got everything out of whack. And it was all centered around themselves. He even said, I'm trying to speak to you spiritually, but I can't. You're living in the flesh. And that's exactly what Jim was trying to say is self-control has nothing to do with the flesh. It has everything to do with the spirit. So it's not about self-discipline. It's about self-control by the spirit. Somebody else real quick. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was really heavy. When I heard that today, I was like, ooh, man. I remember being 16, 17, 18 years old, and people kept saying to me, Cassie, what do you want to do? And I was like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And I didn't know. For the longest time, I didn't know. And I didn't care to know. And uh, I thought, well, just like he said, well, my mom and dad want me to go to college. I'll go to college. And, and I spent exactly two and a half weeks not going to class and doing everything else I could under the planet. Finally, after a month, I went back in there for whatever reason. And the teacher said, why are you here? And I said, well, I really don't know. So I'm leaving. And I never stepped foot back in the college again. And I just did whatever I wanted to do. I'd go to the beach. I'd go fishing. I'd go wherever, shoot guns, drive around, whatever. And spend money I didn't have. And, uh, and I was just, I had what? I had no direction. So when people in my church will say, well, what do you want to do with your life? I would say, I don't know. There's no direction there. And, uh, and that's why I'm thankful that my mom said, you know what? Uh, you need to go in the Air Force because you have no idea what you're doing. And uh, you're probably going to end up in prison if you don't. So uh, I, I did. I went, I, I went to the Air Force. And by the grace of God, that's what gave me direction. That's where I got saved. That's where God, you know, established my goings, and I was so grateful for that. Uh, I really, for the longest time, looked at peers or even other adults and was quite envious that they didn't have to have someone say, no, this is what you're doing. It's like my mom was saying, look, you you, you got to pick a spot, you know, pick a lane. And my mom put me in the lane, and I'm so glad that I didn't resist her. You know, I'm so glad that I just did, well, I don't have anything else burning right now, so I'll just go give this a try. And I'm so thankful for that. And, and I used to look at people and go, man, it must be nice to know you wanted to be, you know, what you wanted to be when, the day you graduated high school and you have that direction and you've got that drive. And that's what I was missing was that drive uh, for order. I didn't want to become a man. And uh, and so I had to grow up a little different way. And uh, so that that was huge. The 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 what, what got me today was the the 20 and the 30 and the 40 and 50 and 60 year old boys that are still walking around. And I thought about that, and I thought, you know, in the 20 years that I've been here and the counseling that I've spent, 
you know, there's a lot of times I've been in couples counseling and the wives just want their husbands to grow up. They just want them to grow up, either get a job or if they have a job, just grow up. And, and what's the definition of that? Really taking responsibility for the order that's necessary for your life. And, uh, you know, I, I, I get I just I, I'm, I'm so thankful for so many godly examples over the years that I've been able to be around of older men who just spent. You know, I remember a guy in our church. I said to him one time, I said, uh, you know, what did you do for a living? And I don't remember the job, but he had done it for like 30 years. And I said, oh, then this is this stuck out to me. I said, did you enjoy your job? He said, I hated every day of it. I said, really? He said, I could not wait to retire because I hated my job. I said, well, then why did you stay there? This is what he said, because I knew my family needed me to provide for them. He did what he hated to do for 30 years. Why? Because he took responsibility. And today, we have so many people in the workforce that if they don't get to do what they want to do, and get paid an egregious amount of money for doing it a minimal amount of time, they're just not going to do it. And I, I, I look at that, and I that scares me to death. What happened to the people? By the way, that doesn't mean that you can't have a job that you don't absolutely love. I think that's a bonus from God, right? Uh, uh, um, Cassie, how many years did your husband work for Nestle? Did he love it? He loved every minute of it. Bonus for that, right? But not everybody gets to do that. Right? Not everybody gets through that. Some people have to grow up and just do whatever they can do and be thankful they're providing. And so that, that really struck me too, Michael, about spiritual decision. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a blessing. Somebody else? Yeah, Dave. Actually, no. <laughs> yeah. 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 Spiritual maturity is all about letting God have control, right? Somebody else? Yeah. 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 I'm glad you said that. That was another thing that got me is I can do a lot of things good and even right. But if I'm not, if I'm doing them for me, how's God going to get honored? As I, I, I'm preaching this week on a godly mother. I'm actually preaching on Hannah uh, from first Samuel chapter one. I love that story. One of my favorite stories in all the Bible. I feel so sorry for her. And then to see God just raise her up the following week, even though it's not father's day, I'm preaching about a careless father and that's Eli and talk about a man 
that didn't want to accept responsibility for the order of his sons? Whoa. And the the and what happened after that? And it really just kind of woke me up to, you know, here's here's Hophni and Phineas who are doing all that they're doing in the priesthood without God. And God said, that's why you're going to die. In fact, Eli, because you didn't do anything about it, I'm going to rip the priesthood right out of you. You'll not have a you'll not have anybody from your bloodline ever be in the priesthood ever again. Woof. I mean, it's just it's just it's the perfect indication of why are you doing what you're doing? Oh, you're doing it for you instead of you're doing it for God. Right. Somebody else real quick. Yeah. 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 I, I liked it when he said, you know, the, the altar was built with a specific order and you can't approach God disorderly. You have to come with the order. And if you look and I know it's laborious, but when you read through Leviticus, and Levitical law, everything was supposed to be placed. It's very specific. The order of how they were supposed to burn the sacrifice and where it was supposed to be placed. This first, then this first, then this first, and this first. You read that and you go. Yeah, even the wood. God, does it really matter that I know that this stuff had to be that, like this and that it had to be the kidney and then these and then all this kind of stuff? Does it really? And God says, yeah, because there's a bigger picture here. Oh, I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. 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 God is a God of order. He blesses order. Yeah. Whew. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just consider us biologically, right? The way our bodies are put together. Talk about an order. One thing's function to let the other thing function to let everything happen. Somebody else real quick. That's so great. I just love hearing what people get out of it. Yeah. Chris, good to have you back. Yeah. 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 Manhood doesn't equal post-puberty, right? My voice dropped. My son's like, Dad, I can't sing that low, and I don't know why. I said, son, you will someday. You'll go through a little whirly bird time there for a minute, and then you'll finally settle in and, and whatever. And I remember that. I mean, I, I, I used to just, I could sing the soprano line with no problems, and I sounded just like a woman just because, you know, I hadn't hit puberty. And then you, uh, you go through that for about a year or so or whatever. Everybody makes fun of you. And then all of a sudden you settle in, right? I used to think my dad had the lowest voice ever, and I just wanted to be able to do things like that. But just because my voice changes doesn't mean I'm a man. And just because I could be 20 or 30 or 40 years old doesn't make me a man. What makes me a man is accepting responsibility to order my life 
And then to be a patriarch, holy cow, for all of us that are grandparents, to be able to, to influence that on another level, you know, if our kids will just let us uh, sometime. But somebody else, yeah. Yeah, or you get reminded. Yeah. What I was going to say, Chris, earlier to that is today's vernacular calls that adulting. Right? The, the millennial the millennial thing is, oh, adulting's so hard. What does that mean? I have responsibility. I got to pay bills. I got to get up. I got to go to work. I got to wash my clothes. I got to fix dinner. I got to, you know, my, my wife was gone this last weekend seeing uh, my grandkids in Colorado. And, uh, and so, you know, if, if the meals were going to get made, I had to do it. If stuff was going to get cleaned, I had to do it. If the house was going to get picked up, I had to do it. And so I was, I was finally, I was like, Brayden, get your stuff. And he's like, okay, dad, it's laying right next to your stuff. Fair enough. <laughs> let's go into this area together <laughs> and let's adult together. Uh, responsibility, man. It, it, if you think back, and I'll, I'll close with this. If you think back in your life to your childhood or your teenage years, and you had, you, you have that, you have that freedom feeling of no responsibility, right? That's what made them so fun is because you could get up on a summer morning and you could go out and just be gone all day and you come home and <laughs> magically mom made dinner. And, and the next morning you get up and magically there's food and then clothes are washed and all this stuff that you have no idea like little elves come in and clean your room and then they go fix stuff and you you, you know then you grow up and you go oh well if someone's not doing that that means i gotta do it well that's no fun you know and then here's what happens an immature man says well i'll marry a wife to do that for me so you're not marrying a you're not marrying a mate or a completer you're marrying a servant right and then they sit in my office, and then they say our marriage is falling apart because he won't pick up his underwear, she doesn't like me, he doesn't this, whatever. And then we're just throwing mud at each other, right? So responsibility is huge. Self-control is all about coming back into order. Yeah. I wish mine did. You're crazy. <laughs> Guess what, Dave? They're still going to make it after you leave. Yeah. Yeah, I'm the exact opposite. My wife leaves, and my bed doesn't get made for four days. And then 15 minutes before she comes in, it gets all made. So I said, I'm going to sleep in it. Why am I going to make it again? We're going to get right back in there in about 10, 12 hours. Anyway, Yeah. All right, good study tonight. Thanks for being here. Self-control. Take that sheet, read it. I promise you the statements on there are super, super, super good, and they'll be a help, all right? Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your love, and thank you for giving us, uh, Lord, the Holy Spirit of God to help us to govern, or in a better term, order our life. Lord, we need orders, and we need yours. And, and God, the more our life is ordered by the eternal word of God, not only the more pleased are you going to be, but Lord, the more full our life is going to be.
that internal joy of the Lord that says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. God, that will be one of the things that make heaven so sweet is our obedience to you on this earth. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us now to go to the uh, go to work to cultivate self-control. Pray that you bless our study. Thank you for these that are here. Minister to them, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.